Hello listeners, welcome to Strength and Recovery Podcast. I'm Jay Rodenbush, Director of Alumni Engagement for Recovery Centers of America, and I'm here today with Bob Gibson, who is our Alumni Coordinator at beautiful RCA Devon in Devon, Pennsylvania. It's one of our larger sites, um, a beautiful campus, and um, just really excited to hear from Bob today and learn a little bit more about his work here at RCA Devon and more about Bob. So with that, um, let's just start with what's your favorite thing about working here at RCA Devon? Okay. Um, first off, I just wanted to say hello to everybody out there listening. Um, I am like mildly terrified, um, but if there's one thing I've learned like in sobriety um, is like doing things that are scary is like a really positive thing for me. So like I just do it. Um, and I feel a lot better afterwards, like being uncomfortable is like a, a big part of like getting sober. Um, but as far as like my favorite thing about working at RCA, and this is probably like a little bit cliche as far as like people that work in treatment, but like it's the truth for me. Um, so seeing like people come in and the state that people are in sometimes when they walk through the doors of a substance abuse facility is like really rough. Like people are kind of oftentimes having like maybe like the worst day of their life. Um, they're really scared. I was really scared when I went to rehab. I, I cried a lot. Um, and then seeing them on the other side, like after that 30 days, like how much people change. And then like even beyond that, like in the position now, like of an alumni coordinator, I get to see people like years removed from when they were in treatment and they're like completely different people. Um, it's, it's amazing that to the point where like, sometimes it takes me a little while to figure out who they are. Like, I don't even recognize them anymore. Um, and I think that's like a really beautiful experience. That's so cool. And just walking in here today, um, being in your office for a little while, seeing people stop in and say, man, I've, I've had a good day today, or I'm, you know, I, I had a, a rough day today and just people playing the piano outside your office yeah. is just, um, they're kind of everyone just kind of is like a community yeah tell us a little bit about the community that happens in the treatment setting yeah so i think it's like a it's a really beautiful thing that happens in places like this and i think it's relatively unique too um i don't think it's something that necessarily happens like outside in regular society so much where like the level of camaraderie that exists within the, the patient communities is like, top, it's top notch. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, like one of my favorite things in the world to do here is when the young male community specifically, they'll let them outside a couple of times a week when it's nice out to play wiffle ball. Mm-hmm. Um, and going and watching those guys play wiffle ball with each other is like my favorite thing in the entire world. I love it so much because you're, you're talking about a group of people who oftentimes have been like, really living very rough mm-hmm. um, on the outside and carrying themselves in a certain way and being very blocked off and guarded and like maybe engaging in some like really negative behaviors. And then all of a sudden you get them sobered up for like a little while and they turn into this like really beautiful, supportive, like cohesive unit. Um, and like, even if somebody's like a terrible, terrible wiffle ball player, everybody's like cheering for them and they have so much fun together. And um, it's just like really beautiful. There's, they have such a a background and so many similarities between them that it like it creates like this really cool bond that like you don't really get 
too often elsewhere in my experience. I th- you know, you come into a, this is one of our larger facilities. And so you come in and you think, well, maybe I'm going to be a number or maybe, you know, I'm not going to fit in. But that's, I think what I've liked and learned about RCA is that unique neighborhood model where they put people in, like you said, the young adults and they kind of put you with other people who may be like-minded and um, how, how does that seem to play out when you see it every day? Yeah, so I definitely agree. I really love the fact that the facility, although it is like very large, it, it is kind of like eight rehabs in one. Okay. Um, so your experience, like if you were to be a patient here, uh, most of your interaction on a day-to-day would be with like the same group of people, with the same like 15 to 25 people. And that's what you call your neighborhood. Exactly. Like that would be your neighborhood. And they structure those neighborhoods based on like normally age. And then even to another degree, like as far as roommates, they will normally try to room you with somebody who has the same substance background. And like I said before, like they end up building these like really strong communities that do carry over like when they leave. Because being alumni, you see it. Like they all come back like in a big group and they stick together after they leave. power of shared experience. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I love being in this building. I love coming for alumni groups. Thank you so much for all the work that you do. Yeah. Um, it really means a lot and, and get so much positive feedback from our alumni and our patients just on having you in this building and in their lives. So of course, really appreciate your work. And mm-hmm. thanks for facing the fear today and yep. talking into this little box. Mm-hmm. The terrifying um, box. The terrifying box. Um, this is probably not the most terrifying thing you've been through. No, no, I wouldn't say that. There's there's levels, you know, there's yeah. differences. Why don't you take us back to Bob in substance use? Yeah, okay. Um, so I'll, I'm going to do this as um, concisely as I, as I can, right? Um, because as we like previously discussed, I am like a member of like a 12-step fellowship. So like a, a large part of that is like at meetings, like oftentimes they'll have somebody do a lead and like kind of like tell their story like from start to finish. So when you say do a lead, explain that because I think that's a new word for a lot of people. Yeah, so a lead is really like depending on the type of meeting that you're attending, if it would be a speaker meeting, your lead would be you would tell people a little bit of how it was. So like what was it like while you were, you know, during your active alcoholism, what happened? So like if there was sort of a seminal event that like brought you into the program, whatever like path you choose to go within, whether it's 12 steps or smart recovery or refuge. Mm -hmm. And then like kind of what life is like now, like after becoming a part of that program, like what sobriety is like. So that's normally like a lead, but there's all kinds of different leads. Maybe it's a topic discussion. You pick a topic, do a brief lead on that topic. People share, there's all kinds of different meetings. Okay. So today you're going to give us a mini lead. Yeah, I'll give a, okay. a little mini, a little summary of the, the Bob saga, you know, which like, you know, anybody who's listening to this who, um, you know, is an alcoholic or an addict, you'll probably recognize that there's nothing like superbly unique about my experience. But like, I find that to be a really cool thing, like how similar we all are, like everybody has special and unique things about them. Like there's nobody else in the world exactly like anybody that's listening to this but like if you are the 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 alcoholic or the addict the odds are that your experience is very similar to a lot of other people's and like we said before like that's what creates like that beautiful 
bond that connects people so well. Um, but my story, so I always like to start off by saying um, that I'm uh, I'm somebody who doesn't really have anything I can necessarily like point to to be like this is why I'm an alcoholic or this is why I'm an addict. Uh, I'm very fortunate. I had a beautiful childhood. Um, I grew up in a pretty nice little like suburban town. Uh, I don't really have any trauma that I experienced that I didn't bring upon myself um, as a result of like my alcoholism and my drug addiction. Um, I have a beautiful nuclear family. Um, there's uh, some alcoholism in my my outward outskirts of my, my family, but my nuclear family is, is beautiful. I have a wonderful father, uh, wonderful mother, sisters, all that. Um, my thing is like, uh, if you believe what's written in like a lot of 12 step literature, it's just like, I have that allergy of the body and that obsession of the mind. So I started drinking and using drugs when I was like 14 or 15, like somewhere in there. And everybody's progression is different. But for me, like as soon as I started, um, in a lot of ways, my life kind of ended. Do you remember that first use? Yeah, so I, I don't remember necessarily like my first drink ever, but I remember the first time I got drunk. Um, and I actually had stolen like a, a water bottle's worth, like a, like a spring water bottle's worth of absolute vodka uh, from my parents' liquor cabinet. Went onto a golf course nearby with a bunch of people and drank it. Um, the entire thing, which would be like a, a pattern for me going forward. Uh, but I remember running around on that golf course and screaming and telling everyone how much I loved Lance Armstrong, which like, I have no idea where that came from. Um, and then, you know, I was unconscious, uh, and I had to get carried off the golf course by like 15 people. Cause I was like a big boy, even at like 15. Um, and I got brought home and my parents were there. And um, I like vaguely recollect crying like a lot because I was scared and I was afraid my parents were going to be disappointed with me. And um, I remember looking at my father and the way he was looking at me and it, it like killed me um, because I could see like how upset and disappointed he was. And I remember saying like, dad, dad, like I promise I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to do this again. Um, and then unfortunately, like he was going to look at me like that uh, a lot for like the next like 14 years. Um, Cause my problem is, like I said before, uh, I'm, I'm just like a really run of the mill, like alcoholic. Like once I put it in me, um, I can't really control like what's going to happen. So like the other key thing with that little story that I remember very well is the next day at school, I ran into a kid that was like on the golf course that night. And he was like, yo, wasn't last night like so fun? Um, and I was like, well, yeah, um, until I blacked out and like got grounded for a month and like cried in front of my dad. Uh, and he was like, yeah, I know. But like, all you got to do next time is just drink half the water bottle of vodka and you'll be fine. Uh, and then like I proceeded to try to do that for like 14 years with booze, drugs, anything. Um, and I can never do it. I just can't. Like once I start... I can't stop. Mm -hmm. So that's like the, the alcoholism for me is like, I like to keep things as simple as possible. And that's as simple as it gets for me. Yeah. yeah. So how, how long did it take then from that moment until you realized this is, this is a problem? Mm -hmm. Was it yeah. pretty rapid or was it kind of a slow build throughout your teens? 
Yeah, I would say probably I held it together like for the most part during high school. I mean, I was a a daily user after that that first point, um, pretty much onward. Uh, I did make it through high school. I got into college somehow. Um, I would say like my sophomore year of college was when things really started to like turn on me because freshman year like everybody was you know drinking all the time and I kind of was able to just like be a part of that and it didn't seem like super abnormal uh, it wasn't until my sophomore year that I moved off campus uh, and I just kind of like stopped going to class and started drinking by myself a lot um, I think that's when things like started to really turn a little bit and I ended up in the hospital uh, at the end of that year and in like pretty, pretty bad shape. Uh, they made me fill out like a will at one point. I was like 19. I was crying. I was like, looked at my dad. I was like, dad, am I going to die? And he's like, no, you're not going to die. Um, and then he yelled at the person who brought the will in for me to like fill out. But like, here's the thing. Another thing about alcoholism that's talked a lot about in the literature. So I was in the hospital as like a pretty direct result of like the way that I was living. And I was crying like a baby because I was terrified that I was going to die. And then what do you think I did like two or three days after I got out of the hospital? I went right back to doing what I do. So like to me, that's always been a good example of like consequences don't stop like the real alcoholic, the real addict, generally speaking. That might be like that thing that drives you to a place of willingness where you're able to do some things that are necessary in order to get sober. Mm -hmm. But generally, like, a consequence alone isn't going to stop you or me. You know, it never has. So I'd say that's when it really started to turn. But it took me another six years until I – or seven years until I finally got myself into, like, a detox for the first time. And when time. did substance come – come to play like drugs yes um so really like all through high school okay. i was you know smoking weed every day um started doing cocaine um pills xanax anything and no treatment at this point no. or no one really i mean it's been a while so like no one was really talking about this stuff openly mm. no i mean i got arrested uh a handful of times in high school but it was always like little stuff like underage or disorderly conduct or like public urination. And, um, you know, now, now, now that you brought it up, my parents did send me to like therapy mm -hmm. um, and they tried drug testing me for a while. But what I did is I would just carry uh, urine around in my sock for like two years. I wore pants every day for two years so I could pass a drug test if I needed to. Oh my word. But I didn't recognize like there was no part of me that was like, this is a problem. I really didn't like really? that. Never, no, it's never, I, no, never came to mind that like I have a you problem. You have urine strapped to your leg, mm -hmm. and this is not a, this no. is normal for yeah. you. Yeah, I just I didn't like think about it. I just, uh, it's insanity. You and know? your grades are okay. You're okay. Managing? Yeah, I mean, I got into college somehow. Like I wasn't a good student by any means, but um, I was able to like get by. And how's the mental health? Uh, so here's the other interesting thing. So when I was new, more new to sobriety and I would like tell my story at meetings, I would oftentimes tell people that, uh, like I had fun with drugs and alcohol for a really long time. And like it, uh, but the reality is like throughout most of my time in high school, like our brains do this thing. Once again, like going back to the literature, they talk about this, this thing that happens where we have like a built in forgetter 
or we do this thing where we'll I like, love that. Built yeah, we'll like romance the drink or the drug and we'll think about it in a way that's not even realistic. Mm-hmm. So now that I have like a couple years removed from it and I can look back with some more hindsight, the reality is I was actually pretty miserable in high school most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's probably helped to fuel the, the drugs and the alcohols when I was doing that. I felt okay, but I don't think I was happy most of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I never considered that it was the drugs or the alcohol that was like an issue for me. It was always, um, I don't know. Uh, I have depression. Um, I have insomnia. It's my anxiety. Um, I have a mental illness. Um, it was always that's what I formulated in my own mind might be the problem. It was I never even considered that drugs and alcohol were, were the problem. And at what point did that start going? Okay, maybe I need to start thinking. Yeah, that this is a problem. Yeah, I would say for myself, uh, it was probably when I was about. 26 um i had at this point been on uh, opiates for quite a while uh it, my my addiction my thing another thing i would do is i would balance from substance to substance so like that was another thing that helped me to justify my behavior like like when i smoke weed i smoke weed every day all day so then like maybe i recognize that hey maybe this weed's becoming a problem so then i'll start drinking um and then i'll start drinking every day that'll become a problem so then I'll switch to something else, maybe painkillers. When I first discovered painkillers, I thought, oh my God, this is going to solve all my problems because I don't go out to the bar. I don't spend all my money. Um, I don't get in trouble. I just sit in my room and I spend like 30 bucks on like two pills a weekend. So I really thought that I had discovered like that the thing that was going to like fix me because it wasn't as problematic. But eventually as for most people, like eventually it, it turned into heroin and, um, the day before I went to my first detox was after like a pretty vicious, like uh, about two year heroin run, which within that time, like I had tried moving. I moved to Colorado at one point thinking that like I need to get away from like the Philadelphia area because that's like a huge like opiate epicenter. Um, obviously, it didn't work like they have drugs there, too. But eventually I came back and um, the, the real thing that finally got me into detox was the, the day before I went in, I crashed my car three times in like an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last one, like I hit a tractor trailer on 95. Uh, I ran into like the back of his trailer. So he didn't stop. So like neither did I. Um, I just got off and kept going to get what I needed. Um, it's powerful. You know, like sometimes mm-hmm. I'd be driving down 95 after work, I would hold down a job most of the time. And um, I would sob in my car. Like I would, I would cry like very powerfully. And because uh, I didn't want to go. Like I, I would have these moments of clarity where I would be like, what am I doing? Like this isn't me. Like I can't believe this is my and life. help me understand because so many people say, well, you had a choice. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we know when we're working in this field, addiction removes our choices, right? Yeah. But what do you, how do you respond when people go, but you had a choice right then, you didn't have to go. Yeah, so I would say, um, to, to agree with what you were saying, so like, once again, to like go back to the literature, like I'm a big uh, believer in like what's written in 12-step literature, and in that literature, they say that essentially there was probably a time in every al- alcoholic and addict's life where they could have stopped, mm-hmm. um, like on their own willpower if they wanted to. Uh, the problem is like most people don't stop before they cross this line and there's like this invisible line. And once I cross that line, like now I'm beyond human aid. 
So like I'm beyond like my own willpower to stop. I'm beyond like any other individual being able to save me. And then that's where kind of like all the higher power stuff comes in. So it's not a, I can do this white knuckle moment. No. And like, I'll just throw out to this. So like powerlessness for me, even like two years sober was like a really hard concept for me to digest. Like I understood that it existed within my own experience, but to try to like explain how that makes sense to anybody else was really challenging. The best way I've ever for myself been able to like really wrap my head around it is, is that when it comes to drugs and alcohol, uh, I'm insane. I'm just, I'm insane. I can't think about it logically. So like alcoholics and drug addicts, including myself, we can exhibit willpower. um, We can use our intelligence in a lot of directions in our life. But when it comes to drugs and alcohol, I can't think about it logically because I'm insane. So like I'm not able to use willpower or like logic or my intelligence. And like the the second step in the 12 steps is literally um, talks about being restored to sanity. Mm -hmm. So like if I'm going to ask to be restored to sanity, I have to first accept the fact that like I was insane. So like I can't make sane decisions to stop. I don't have the power at the time. And so that's when you started seeking something else. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So I finally uh, went home that day after crashing my car many times. Um, I was living with my parents because I'm the kind of, you know, drinker and drug user that when I'm using, I can't function out in the world. Like I kind of need somebody to take care of me. I need a place to live. I can't really feed myself. So I'm 26, still very much so living with my parents. Every time I moved out, I failed. Uh, I would come crawling back home. So I went home. My car was all, all banged up. And honestly, I don't think there was really even at that point any part of me that was really trying to get sober. I just knew that I couldn't get out of this one. It was like a pickle that I couldn't escape from. So I finally went and told my parents that I had a problem. I needed help. They already knew, but like I finally came clean and went to my first uh, detox. But even there, like I didn't do what I was supposed to do. I didn't take suggestions. Um, After the five days was up, they were like, all right, so your detox is over. We're going to recommend that you do like a, a full residential stay now. And I was like, no, no, I think I'm going to be okay. I think I'm just going to gonna go home. And um, I always remember they said to me, um, they were like, so you mean to tell us that you've been drinking and using drugs pretty much every single day for 14 years and you think that you only need five days and you're going to be okay? And I said, yeah. And they went, all right, good luck. Um, mm. And so I left. And uh, and you have those moments sometimes here, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And what's that like? Uh, it's challenging. It can be like really frustrating sometimes when people are trying to leave and I'm trying to, you know, make them understand that it's probably a good idea for them to stay. Mm-hmm. And um, the simplest thing for that I like to throw out to them, and it's just based on like actual real world experience with this. Uh, in the time that I've been working in treatment, which has been like over three years now, um, in and out of trying to be sober for like five or six years, I have never in my entire life met one person that told me that they wish they would have left rehab sooner. That Absolutely. has never happened ever. Um, it is always, man, I wish I would have stayed longer over and over again. I've heard that hundreds of times. Mm -hmm. Never have I heard anybody say, man, I wish I would have left rehab sooner. Um, And here I am 
I wish I would have stayed in rehab longer. I wish I didn't leave because I left. I didn't stay sober. And the one I'll say like mildly unique thing about my story is when I started using again, I never used heroin again or opiates, Mm. but I started, I picked up vodka uh, and cocaine and surprisingly vodka uh, brought me to actually like a worse place than the heroin ever did. It was horrible. That last, the last year and a half um, was miserable. It was very bad. And everyone's body reacts so differently. Yeah. And that's probably, you know, and you don't know what's going to be your substance that takes you to the bottom. Yeah, exactly. And so when did you, you, you did you go back to rehab? Was it multiple times? Was it one more time? Was yeah. It, how did, what did that look like? Yep. Yeah, so another thing, like, like I said before, like everybody has like small things that are a little bit unique about their stories. And I'm sure other people that are even listening to this will have experienced what I've experienced, but by the way, this is going to start getting into like the good stuff, you know, like the, the little hope stuff. Uh, so eventually we're after like, there. yeah, we're getting there. We're, I think we're here right now. But I, in, in retrospect too, we have families who listen to this and we have fam- So it's, it's really powerful, your story and yeah. thanks for sharing and, and, and educating us, right? Like yeah. just walking us through this journey is part of understanding. So mm-hmm. yeah, thank you. Um, so right before we get into the good, just to like recap the bad real fast. So like right before like, you know, the light, it got really dark to the point where uh, I was uh, stealing from everybody that I loved. Um, I kind of hated myself. I couldn't really look in the mirror. Uh, I thought about killing myself a lot. Uh, I was having really horrible anxiety. Um, I was getting prescribed different psych meds and drinking on them and that was making things even worse. Uh, so things had gotten really bad. I kind of had like what I would probably say now was like a, a, a nervous breakdown mm-hmm. right before the end. And um, I was afraid that my family was going to throw me into a mental institution if I didn't do something. So I finally was like, all right, I'm going to go to one of these meetings. So I, I got like, I got it in my head that I was going to go to one of these 12 step meetings. Uh, so that way I could tell my parents that I tried something. Still no intention of being sober whatsoever mm-hmm. at this point. Uh, and I went to this meeting where I knew there was going to be a meeting and I walked up and there was a bunch of women just like hanging around, like smoking cigarettes and stuff. So I walked up to them and I was like very nervous and like probably very smelly and like looked like a barbarian at this point in my life. And I walked up to these ladies and I said, Hey, like, is there a meeting here? And they were like, yeah, there is, but it's a woman's meeting. And I was like, all right, cool. Um, I'll, I'll try to come back later. And in my mind, I was like, yes. Now I don't have to go. You avoided it. Yeah, I can tell my mom and dad that I tried, you know. Um, but the lady that I was speaking with literally like grabbed me by my arm and was like, uh-uh, you're not going anywhere. Uh, and if I could find this lady like today, oh. I would love to because she saved my life. Like she 100% saved my life. So the, the women went back into the meeting room and they took a quick group conscience um, and they decided to let me stay. So my first meeting was a woman's meeting. Um, and I went in there and I sat and I cried for like an hour straight. Uh, and then after the meeting was over, the women essentially kidnapped me. They were like, Hey, there's a men's meeting coming in like another hour or two. You should hang out and meet some of the guys. And I was like, Oh no, no, I have to get home. Like my mother will be worried about me just trying to get out of there. And they were like, your mom will be fine. Um, and then like eight women like sat with me for like an hour and a half until the men came. Um, and then I sat through a men's meeting and I cried for another hour. And that's like where it all started. Um, 
So a lot of people that are big like 12 step program people, myself included, will talk about like the steps a lot. And like the steps are what really did change my life. But like the steps and like the literature isn't what initially attracted me or got me to come back. Literally the only reason I came back to another meeting after that day was because people were just so nice to me. Mm. Um, The guy that I was sitting next to at the men's meeting, he came up to me and he was like, hey, um, here, take this coin. And he gave me a a 24-hour coin. And he was like, when this melts in your mouth, you can drink again. And I was like, okay, um, that's super weird. And then he gave me two pieces of gum. Um, And like anybody who's listening to this that is, um, you know, was like a a heavy drug user will understand where I'm coming from with this. Uh, He gave me two pieces of gum and I couldn't believe that he had given me a piece of his gum, let alone two pieces because of the people I was associating with for years before that didn't do nice things for each other. Everyone was always trying to get over on each other. That like blew my mind. It seems like so simple, but it was a huge deal for me. I literally still have the one piece of gum. It's framed in my apartment. still have it. It's from from like four years ago. Um, So that was like my first like real experience with like 12 step groups. Um, And like I said, I just like kept coming back. Um, Did that for like six months, went to meetings every day. Um, and then I, I'll just have to throw out like another warning here not to like spook anybody, but like it's my real experience and I don't want to be dishonest. Um, at around like six or seven months, uh, going to meetings every day, uh, commitment, speaking, all those things starting to feel, I felt really good for like the first couple of months. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, inevitably when you drink and use drugs to the level that I did, if you remove those things, there will probably initially be like a pretty large boost in Mm -hmm. like your life. Like things will start to straighten out. But after like six or seven months with no sponsor and no steps, I started to become like really miserable again um, and started to decide that once I had a year sober, I was either going to start drinking again uh, or if I didn't feel any better, I was going to kill myself. Um, And that was sober. So like here's like another like big point that I had a really hard time understanding for a long time is that like drugs and alcohol are actually like not my problem. Um, My problem is I didn't ever learn how to live life and like cope with life or deal with things like a normal person. So whenever I'm scared, lonely, fearful, anxious, any of those things, I get loaded. So when I remove the ability to shut those feelings down, now I don't know what to do. Mm. So like that's where just staying sober and just going to meetings for me like wasn't enough. Um, So eventually I got the sponsor. Um, I started working the steps. And like within that process of like working the steps and having the sponsor, um, I found like this higher power that like I didn't even believe in. Um, I honestly thought that people of faith were like, I don't believe this anymore, so please don't be mad at me, anybody (laughs) out there. But once upon a time, I thought like people that believed in, you know, spiritual ideas and concepts were like weak and stupid. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I wasn't interested in it. But then like as a result of, hanging around all these spiritual minded people for long enough and the kindness that they showed me in this process of going through the 12 steps. Um, I recognized one day that like I, I, my obsession to drink and use drugs was no longer there, which had been something that had been with me for 14 years. Um, and not only that, like this feeling came over me that there was like something outside of myself that had removed it. And that was like helping me. Um, and since that day, that's been like a central part of my sobriety is like, I do have like a very strong faith and like a higher power of my understanding today. And, um, 
never expected that. Like, there's, like, a joke uh, amongst, like, you know, the sober community that, like, you know, one of the worst things that happens when you when you get sober is, like, you become, like, a spiritual person. And it's, like, <laughs> a big, a, a funny joke. But that is, like, what ends up happening for a lot of people. Um, and, like, the, you know, the literature does often say that, like, it's a big part of recovery is, like, finding that that sense of a higher power, whatever that might look like. And I definitely got that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but just to like wrap up this little, little hope bomb. Um, so since like going through that, that process with my sponsor, um, working through those steps. So life, there's this thing that they say, like life will be beyond your like wildest dreams. And like a lot of people really don't like that. And when I was newly sober and people would say that, um, I didn't not like it. I just didn't believe them mm-hmm. because I would see somebody roll up in like a rickety car and, um, you know, they weren't really wealthy or anything like that. And they would be all happy and say they're living way beyond their wildest dreams. And I'd be like, no, you're not. You know what I mean? You're lying. Uh, but the, the reality is like, it is life beyond your wildest dreams because like, I never would have expected that I would find myself living the type of life that I'm living now. So it's not like anything that crazy. It's not like some super fairy tale. Contentment? Yeah, absolutely. Like a a very high level of contentment. Um, I feel useful today where I I never had before. Um, My relationship with my family is better than it's ever been in my life. Um, Before I even started drinking and using, my relationship with my family wasn't as good as it is now. Um, I have a niece named... Lily, that's uh, just turned two. And um, I'm the first person who ever got to take her in a pool. Uh, Before I got sober, like if I didn't get sober, I don't think I would have been in that kid's life. Uh, You would, it would be a mistake to to let me be a part of your your child's life if I was still using. So like, it's just been beautiful. The, The job that I get to do, the people that I associate with today are all so good and supportive. Like it is, it's beyond my wildest dreams because I never know what's going to happen next. Like if you stay sober, a lot of people and myself included, I was very afraid of sobriety, the idea of it, because it was the unknown. I'd never done it before. Um, I was scared. Uh, and it's still the unknown. Like if I continue to stay sober and do the things that I need to do in order to stay sober, I have no idea where I'm going to be like a year from now, two years from now. But like to me now, that's like really exciting. That's interesting. My life before, as like free as I thought that I was, and um, I thought like, oh, I'm living on the edge. Uh, the reality is I did the same things with the same people every day and nothing ever changed. So like if I ever decided to drink or use drugs again, uh, I'm not a psychic, but like I do have a crystal ball when it comes to that. I know exactly what's going to happen. Um, if I stay sober, I have no idea, but it's been really good so far. So like, if anybody's sitting here listening right now and is like not really sure if they want to like give sobriety a try or treatment a try, um, I would just say like you already know what it's like doing what you're doing now. Like why not give something else a try? Like it'll probably be way more interesting than what you got going on right now. At least it'll be different, you know, just give yourself a shot. I personally haven't met anybody yet that like really did the things that are suggested in, in recovery and didn't find that they were happier or like more content. Well, Bob, I thank you so much for 
agreeing to talk to me today yeah, and to our listeners. And thank you for your service. Mm-hmm. Um, really enjoy having you a part of the team. Thank you. We always end with favorite recovery quote. Ah, okay. Um, so I would say, I don't know if this is necessarily like a... Can I do two? Can you I do can, two real quick? Absolutely. Love, there are like, no rules. Yeah, right. absolutely. I love two. like recovery quotes. Um, so I'll do. You know, I'll do. I'll stick with one. I'll stick with one because oh, I want to. No, like, I want to hear it. the other one. All right, I'll do one longer one and then one real short one. Okay, good. So the first one is, and this is something that like I've been hearing in twelve step groups for a long time, um, is like don't give up before the miracle happens. Um, and the reason I like that one so much is because like before I got sober, like I literally did not believe in miracles whatsoever. Uh, like when I thought of a miracle, it was like a shark, like swimming into my bedroom window and like speaking English to me. Um, but here's another cool thing. If you decide to like get up into this whole, uh, sober stuff, um, you will see miracles all the time. Uh, because to me, like any alcoholic or drug addict that gets like literally one day sober is a miracle. Uh, for most of human history, like scientists, psychiatrists, doctors, uh, they thought we were all hopeless and that we were all going to die and nobody was ever going to get sober. And now there's millions of people all over the world that have been sober for years. Um, and you get to see people come in that you probably in your mind are like, oh, that person's never going to get sober. And then before you know it, they're, they're doing great. So I love that one. Like just holding on until that miracle happens for you and like that obsession to drink and use drugs gets removed. Um, and then the last one is just real quick is, uh, if you want something you never had before, you have to do something you've never done before. Uh, and I can't really think of one circumstance in life where that's not true. Um, for myself, everything that I have today, that's any good, that's positive is all a result of doing things that I had never done before to obtain them. So I find that really useful too. Well, thanks for doing your first podcast. Yeah. Something you've never done before Mm -hmm. and bringing some positivity to all of us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Have a great day. You too. Thank you for joining us today for the Strength and Recovery Podcast. Real people real experiences, real hope. This podcast is presented by the Alumni Association of Recovery Centers of America. If you're interested in learning more, visit rcaalumni.com. Here, you can fill out our web form to make sure you're receiving our daily recovery emails and are notified of special events. The Alumni Association of RCA exists to connect individuals to an active recovery community. It is our goal to work with alumni to help them succeed, belong, and ultimately serve others. We help our alumni succeed by hosting more than 120 recovery support meetings per month with both virtual and in-person offerings of big book studies, speaker meetings, beginners meetings, Monday through Friday daily inspiration meetings, meetings for men and women, and faith-based meetings. Second, we create a welcoming community that provides a sense of belonging with a full calendar of events each month. Speaker series, barbecues, holiday celebrations, bowling, sporting events, theater shows, and much more. Thirdly, we provide an opportunity for our alumni to serve 
both the recovery community and in our local neighborhoods. We offer speaker commitments, chair commitments, mentoring opportunities in our facilities, volunteering at food banks, recovery, and overdose awareness events. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Recovery Centers of America provides inpatient and outpatient treatment and has locations in Massachusetts, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Indiana, and Illinois. Recovery Centers of America, or RCA, was founded to break down barriers to expert treatment. We answer the phone and admit patients 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, are in-network with major insurance providers, and provide evidence-based treatment in our world-class facilities. If you or someone you know needs help, call 1-800-RECOVERY and know we are here for you.